Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's continue in prayer. Father, I pray for each one of us that we do truly find a great delight, a great blessing, a great reward in gathering together as your people to worship you in spirit and in truth. It is so easy for us to take your church for granted. It is so easy for us to take the communion of saints and the blessedness of life in Christ together for granted. It is so easy for us to take for granted one another and the privilege and truly the great responsibility that we have to love one another. Even as we have considered you this morning, Father, as the God who spends and is spent, the great sovereign over all things, yet the God who in love condescends to give himself to serve the good, the blessedness, the renewal, the perfection of your creatures. Such a great love we can hardly even begin to get our minds around. But I pray, Father, that you will help us in this time to think deeply on these things. There is no greater challenge, no higher calling than the calling of love. An easy thing for us to set aside, an easy thing for us to rationalize, an easy thing for us to reduce to euphemism and emotion. But as our God is love, so we in you are called to be a people of love. So I pray, Father, that you would help me to speak clearly. I pray for all who are here that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to own in truth, to be faithful with ourselves. Don't let our minds wander. Don't let us have our thoughts turned to other people and what we think they need to hear, what they need to understand. But Father, I pray by your spirit you would help us to do business with ourselves, that we would be evermore renewed by your spirit into the likeness of our Lord. Meet us in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're approaching the end of the epistle to the Hebrews. 
And last week we finished chapter 12, and that turned out to be quite an, quite an exercise, a pretty massive sermon. And for that I apologize because there was just so much historical and biblical background to bring to bear, uh, but it became pretty massive. And so I hope as we are finishing off in chapter 13, where the writer's really putting forth uh, a series of very focused exhortations that um, I will be able to deal with each of those things in a very succinct and clear way because the writer clearly understood his readers to discern and to be transformed, to be changed by the things that he brought to bear. Let me just preface this by saying that these exhortations and even the first one that we're going to consider today, verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews 13, are still built out of this basic uh, goal of the writer, which is to spur his readers on to persevere in faith. He's not changing the subject or moving even away from what his burden was for these Jewish Christians But in fact, he is, I believe, beginning to flesh out what in practical terms, perhaps, at least in certain arenas, what in practical terms this thing of persevering faith actually looks like. And so I've titled this Enduring Faith and the Obligation of Love. And I hope that by the time I'm done today, you'll see how those things fit together. That this isn't just shifting a topic, okay, let's go talk about love now. But that really this obligation of love is very much a part of this concern of the writer that his readers would persevere in faith with all that that implies, with all that that entails. So the writer says in chapter 13, verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. As I said, he's staying with the same basic theme of the need to persevere in faith, but he begins with this exhortation to love. And I think it's the place to start because this obligation is most fundamental in the Christian life. In fact, I would argue this is the very essence of the Christian life, the obligation of love. Paul went so far as to say that love is the fulfillment of law. Whatever God's commandment, whatever his directive, it has its pleroma, its fullness, its fulfillment in this obligation that is love. Romans chapter 13. So if we come down to it, then we can say, really, what are the commandments of God? There is really ultimately one commandment, the commandment of love. Now, that looks like a whole bunch of different things in different ways. And so I'm not at all negating the way in which uh, the scriptures break out discrete commandments, but all of them, all of them ultimately find their truth, their meaning, their actual fulfillment in this thing that we call love. 
Paul says Israel's Torah was all about this obligation of love. Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. And because Israel's law, the law of Moses, its covenant, its Torah, really was describing and defining Israel's sonship, that means that for Israel to be defined by love is for them to be defined by love as God is defined by love. To love as sons of God, and a son is of the Father. A son shares in the likeness, the qualities, the characteristics of the father. When you see the son, you see the father. Therefore, for Israel as son to be obligated to this obligation of love is for them to actually be lovers as God himself loves. And that's important because too often we don't recognize that there's a distinction between love as we know it and as it's true in God. What we understand to be love as human beings as we come into this world is actually a perverse facsimile of love as it is true in God. We are the image and likeness of God, and therefore we have a sense of this thing called love. We have a sense of its virtue. We have a sense of its importance. We have a sense of Uh, even our engagement with it. But in the context of our alienation, as Paul would say, cut off from the very life of God, what we believe love to be, the way that we understand it and experience it, is at odds or at least a perverse form of love as God knows it and as God himself manifests it. Like everything else in our experience, everything else in our affections, everything else in our emotion, everything else in the lives we live, what we call love is ultimately just another expression of our alienation and our self-enslavement. Now, I'm talking about as natural people as we come into the world. What the world understands love to be is another manifestation of human alienation, human self-enslavement. It is a self-centric, self-referential way of relating to other people. And in that sense, what the world understands love to be is really just the flip side of hatred. Love and hatred are the same thing. They're just the way self-centric existence responds to other people. To use Jesus' words, we love those who love us, we greet our brethren, we hate our enemies. So love is what we express towards those for whom we have favor, in whatever way, to whatever extent, for whatever reason. Hatred is what, we, is what we express or what we feel towards those for whom we have disfavor, for whatever reason, to whatever extent. So love and hatred are just the way the same self-centered, self-referencing existence of natural human life, the way that self-centered existence responds to different people in different ways at different times. 
based on how we perceive them, how we feel about them in a given moment. But the love that defines God, the love that has been fully disclosed, fully revealed, fully expressed in the man Jesus of Nazareth, the love that defines God is the self-sacrificing love that seeks the true and the greatest good of its object without any sense of personal benefit. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The incarnation is itself an expression of the condescension of God. The submitting of God for the good of the other. Love, as it's true in God, is a self-giving, self-sacrificing love that seeks, that discerns and pursues the true and the greatest good of its object with no concern for personal benefit. That kind of love withholds nothing and it risks everything in its efforts to pursue and to realize the other's good. This is probably going to be one of the hardest sermons that I've ever delivered because this nails us in the heart. It nails me in the heart. And you can say, well, you're talking in idealistic terms. Well, in a certain sense, I am. But yet this is the truth of what love is as it is in God. And it is what it looks like us for, for us to be people defined by love. Imperfectly, yes. Incompletely, yes but ultimately, perfectly, such that, again, we'll be able to say, when you see me, you see the Father. A God who is love will be seen in people who are love. But love in this sense, love that, again, is the giving of itself, withholding nothing, risking everything in its effort to secure the other's good. Just go back and read Hosea 1 and 2. And I'm not, and let me just take an aside and say, every week I do notes that go up with sermon audio. So if you don't know that, or if you don't look at them, a lot, I I do a lot more development, a lot more scripture, a lot of things to look at. So I encourage you to go back and to use those notes for further consideration and prayer. But if you look at Hosea 1 and 2, you have God revealing himself as a spurned lover. God who has an adulterous wife. But he doesn't say, she's an adulteress, I'm done with her, I want a divorce, forget it. She's betrayed me, she's unfaithful. And even though she has used, and he's talking about ultimately his relationship with Israel, even though she's used everything that I've given her to pursue other lovers, to win other lovers for herself, I'm not going to give up on her. I'm going to pursue her, and I'm going to win her. I'm going to take her back. And not just take her back, but I'm going to cleanse her and I'm going to renew her and perfect her. And I will make a covenant of peace on her behalf with the creation. I will betroth her to me in righteousness. I will betroth her to me forever. This is the God who is almighty, the God who is sovereign, who says, I'm going to pursue 
that which has offended me in order to perfect it. And that's not us. You burned me, you hurt me, you said this, you did that, I'm done, I'm out of here. This is the God who withholds nothing and risks everything. Even in the incarnation, you see a God who is, in a sense, risking himself by joining himself to broken Adamic humanness. This kind of love doesn't work at a distance. It doesn't work with impersonal detachment. This kind of love takes upon itself the burden that it seeks to resolve. It's not a remote, abstract, whimsical feeling of, well, I hope it goes well for you. Sorry about that. It takes upon itself the burden that it seeks to resolve. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the, John introduces the upper room discourse where Jesus begins through this Passover meal to explain to his disciples the meaning and the significance of what's coming the next day in his death. John introduces that by saying, having loved his own, he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the uttermost. And too often we get, you know, even among Christians, there's this perception that you have this angry God who's waiting to destroy everything. And Jesus jumps in front of God's fist and says, here, punch me instead of punching the people. But everywhere throughout the Gospels and throughout the scriptures, but certainly even in the Gospels, you have Jesus saying, it's the Father's love that sent me. I am the Father's love. I am the love of God for the world that he created. I didn't come into the world. The Father didn't send me to condemn, to destroy the world, but to save it, to restore it. And I will not step away from this hour for which the Father sent me. I will fully embrace it. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Even in his agony in the railing, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, this is a convicting love. It's easy for us to do doctrine. It's easy for us to do theology. It's hard to actually live the Christian life. This love doesn't work at a distance or with impersonal detachment. It takes upon itself the burden it seeks to resolve. That's Romans 5. And I didn't know Colin was going to read it, but it's absolutely perfect. This is the love that the scriptures extol. This is the love that everywhere the scripture is concerned with and speaking about. It's the love that is Jesus' great commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. The Father sent me in love. I am sending you in love. 
Love one another. This kind of love is the way in which we see what it is to be truly human, to be children of the Father. More than anything else, this is what really shows people to be sons of the Father, to be characterized by this sort of love. So it's the appropriate place for the writer to begin. And what he does here, I believe, is give a general exhortation, and then he gives two examples of what that might look like. So his general exhortation is, let love of the brethren continue. And then in verse 2, he gives an example of what that would look like. And then in verse 3, he gives another example of what that would look like. Obviously, this is not exhaustive, but he wants them to see in a very tangible way what this would look like in their circumstances, in the lives that they're living. So his general exhortation is, let the love of the brethren endure or continue or abide. Let it endure. And this is, this is a commandment. This is an exhortation, not a suggestion. And what he's doing is he's calling his readers to a perpetual commitment of love toward the household of faith. His concern is specifically with the love of the brethren. And you see it as an echo even of chapter 10, where he talks about when they first came to know the Lord and the suffering that they endured and the hardship and the way they stood together and they encouraged each other. And they ministered to each other in their suffering, in their imprisonment, in the, in the suffering of loss and, and difficulty, seizing of property. And he's saying, let this love of the brethren continue. Now, that doesn't imply that Christians are only to love their fellow Christians and no one else. In the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus talks about his kingdom and what his kingdom really looks like in terms of of its qualities and those who are sons of the kingdom, he tells them that this love that characterizes God is a love that causes the sun to shine on the good and the evil and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And he says, if you love those who love you, so what? Everybody does that. If you greet your brethren, so what? Everybody does that. The pagans do that. You are to be like your father. And he prefaces that by saying, you have heard it said you shall love your friends and hate your enemies, but I tell you. So this isn't simply love fellow Christians and you can despise everybody else. That's not what he's saying. But there is a unique bond of love that exists between Christians. Why? Because they all have the same doctrine, because they they have the same confession, because they're followers of the same religion. No, they are united to one another as fellow sharers in God's life in the Messiah by the Spirit. They are members of one another. Appropriately, in his book on, on atonement, Thomas Torrance talks about the church as a key outcome of atonement. But he says this, God is love, so that the church that dwells in love dwells in God and God in it. 
By making the church the dwelling place of the Father and the Son, the Spirit makes the church participate in the concrete embodiment of the love of God that is in the incarnate Son. It is in that indwelling and love that the church has its essential life. Love in the church is precisely its participation in the humanity of Jesus Christ, for he is the love of God poured out for mankind. In him, the church is rooted and grounded in love, and in him it becomes itself a communion of love, a fellowship of love, through which the life of God flows out in love toward every human being. As he is, so are we in this world. In Jesus the Messiah, the form that the love of God took was the form of a servant who poured out his life for mankind. But that form that God's love took in him is the pattern for the communion of love in the church. Very convicting stuff. But the point that he's making is that the church isn't just a collection of people who hold to the same religion. They are the body of Christ. They are members of one another because they are sharers in the same God in the same spirit. There is no individual independent existence for those who are in Christ. There is an organism that is called the church. Believers are members of one another so that love for the brethren is nothing more than their love for God because they are the dwelling of God in the spirit. Love for fellow members, for fellow believers, is precisely love for God and it is also love for ourselves because the church is the truth of who we are. And that love is God's own love that is in the church and through the church ultimately to the world. And I would steer you to 1 John. If you want to have something to read this week, go back and read 1 John. Certainly chapters 3 and 4 and into chapter 5, because he very much emphasizes this truth. This is why there is a unique obligation and bond of love or, or life of love that exists between believers. And that's why the writer is emphasizing, let the love of the brethren continue. Well, the fact that he says it must continue means that it might not continue. And I think there are, there's always a challenge to love. And in this particular context, I think the challenge in this epistle, the circumstance the writer's dealing with, the challenge to love abiding in an active, engaged way, because love is a conscious, mindful, purposeful exertion. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not emotional. It's not whimsical. It is purposeful. It is intentional. It is discerning. It is active. It is engaged. And for that reason, it is readily set aside or undone by distraction. And in the case of these believers, their distraction was the things that they were suffering, their persecution, their hardship, their difficulties. And we all know that's true. When we get preoccupied with what's going on in our lives, our difficulties, our circumstances, the last thing we're thinking about 
is the love of the brethren. He says, let it continue. Let it continue. And personal concerns, personal preoccupations, in their case, again, hardship, suffering, difficulty, those things push love away. But ease pushes love away too. I don't need anybody. I've got what I need. I'm wrapped into my life, my stuff, my things, my vacations, my this, my that, whatever it happens to be, my business, my family, whatever. And, and, and what's going on in the community of faith is something that I don't pay attention to. Even as Colin said, we could show up every single Sunday. We can be in the building every time the doors are open, and that doesn't mean that we have the least bit of love for the brethren. It just means that we're showing up in a building at a certain time with other people in the room with us. And I'm not being a scold. If I am, I'm scolding myself. But this this is the challenge. This is why he begins in this way. And he gives us two examples of what this might look like to, to hold tightly and cause love to continue and to abide. And both of these examples in chapter, in verses 2 and 3, are, they speak to the fact that love is intentional, it is mindful, it is active, it is an exertion of care for others. As kept coming up in our men's group on Friday, it's loving indeed and not just in word. It's easy for us to love in word. That's not love. And the second thing about both of these, and I think this is very important and speaks to this idea of this, you know, striving to see this love remain, is that both of these examples speak to the matter of loving those who are distant In the first instance, they are distant relationally. In the second instance, they are distant circumstantially. And hopefully we'll see why that's important. Well, his first example then is this thing of love for strangers. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And the idea here is, uh, what's being highlighted is love's eagerness to receive and to provide for those outside of our familiar relationships. Think again of the echo of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If you love those who love you, so what? Everybody does that. If you greet your brethren, so what? Everybody does that. This is the obligation of love as it pertains to those outside of our familiar relationships. And the notion of stranger, you know, in our, in our culture, it's a connotation of danger or threat or whatever. We tell kids, don't talk to strangers. You could get hurt or kidnapped or whatever. This doesn't carry that connotation of threat in that sense. It really, in context, pertains to those who would come into our sphere of influence or, or, or in reference, whatever, most likely in this context, those who would be travelers or foreigners, brothers and sisters in Christ. 
In the ancient world, people had to help each other. If there were such things as inns, and there weren't many of them, what we would call a hotel, uh, it was not a place you generally wanted to be. And you see this throughout the Gospels and, through the, and certainly through the epistles of Christians receiving each other, receiving each other. People from outside, people who are foreign to us, people who are not a part of our inner circle. And that's what he's getting at. Do not neglect, it's really one term, stranger love. That's what he calls it, a noun, stranger love. Do not neglect that. And just as it is today, it was back then the same way, people are reluctant to welcome strangers into their homes without some sort of relational connection or commendation. Who is this person? Are you related to me? Okay, you're a family member. Who, who sent you? Oh, I'm a friend of so-and-so or so. Oh, okay. We're reluctant. We're reluctant. And the writer expresses that by the way his grammar gets at this. He says, stop neglecting the love of strangers. Stop neglecting it. What's the presupposition? You are neglecting it. You are neglecting to welcome those outside of your circle, to love them. It's the most natural thing for us. People don't get, they they tend to hold themselves back from unfamiliar people because of suspicion, because of fear, because of some sort of concern, sometimes prejudice, sometimes just a lack of concern. I don't know you, why do I care about you? It's not to be that way with the saints. But just as with his general statement, a hospitable heart doesn't ensure that we are hospitable. Just as love is easily distracted in general, hospitality is easily distracted. Places to go, people to see, it's not convenient, it's hard, it's this, it's that. Sorry, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. I would, but I can't. A hospitable heart, a heart for people, doesn't ensure in itself that we will be a hospitable people. It is very easy to neglect hospitality. Often we're so distracted and so busy and so preoccupied with the things that are in our immediate circle that we even miss the opportunities or the occasions of hospitality. It blows right past us because we're not paying any attention. Well, the writer says that love will express itself in hospitality, but also, interestingly, he brings in another idea, which is that we should be thinking about this thing of receiving or loving strangers from the standpoint that that those things, that that ministration has a greater significance than simply the hospitality itself. He says, some having done this have actually received angels. And the writer isn't saying, be hospitable to strangers because maybe it'll be an angel. Wouldn't that be great if there was an angel in your house? That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that there is a greater significance to things in life that seem insignificant or 
inconvenient or difficult or not what we think that we should be paying any attention to. You never know the full impact of the simplest acts of love or what fruit God will bring from them. We never know. That's what he's saying. If it's just about bringing some strange Christian from Nigeria into our house for the night, okay, I'll do that. Hopefully he'll eat the food and, you know, he'll know how to use a shower or whatever. And that's fine. I'll do that. He's saying, no, it's larger than that. There is a significance in these interactions that God brings that transcends even our ability to understand it. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know the fruit that's going to come from this. But what we should expect is rich blessing from serving brethren of the same father. Paul said to the Romans, I've longed for the longest time to come to you. To be with you. You're strangers to me. I didn't plant this church in Rome. But I've longed to come to you. To minister the gospel to you and have you minister the gospel to me. That we can minister to one another's faith. That we would bless one another by our fellowship though we're strangers to one another. You're not in my church. You're not in my family. You're not in my denomination, whatever it happens to be. Paul, what what the writer is saying is you don't know what God will do through this, but you can expect a blessing from this sort of hospitality. And it's also the unexpected quality of this, I think, is a reminder to his readers and to us that familiarity, expectations, appearances, circumstances, those are not the things that should determine the occasion and objects of hospitality. There's an unexpected quality to it. Somebody crosses our path. In other words, this isn't, hospitality is an act of faith. If it's all strategized, planning, arrangements, here's when you, you know, and I'm not saying that that we never can get together in a fellowship or whatever with planning. That's not my point. But what he's talking about is is an act of faith, living life according to faith, persevering in faith, being sensitive and discerning to the moments that meet us in the day. Living in faith, trusting that God is doing something through this. I don't know what it is, but here's something he presented me with, and I'm going to embrace it. Well, wait a minute, I haven't planned for this. You know, I haven't been to the store, I haven't cleaned the house, I can't, you know, whatever it happens to be. This is not about planning or convenience, this is an act of faith. An act of faith. Love for the one who is not familiar with to us as an active engagement, administration unto that person. The next example that he gives, and as I said, this second example deals with the issue of distance circumstantially. The first one is relationally. This is someone I'm not related to. I don't know them. They're not my friend. I don't, this person is a stranger. This is a circumstantial distance. People who are remote from our daily lives. Specifically, he mentions, and it doesn't have to be limited to this, but these are good examples and ones that were real-time for his readers. He mentions those who are imprisoned for the faith, 
or those who are otherwise being mistreated for the faith. And it's not, you know, we don't care about prisoners in general and, and don't worry about them. But he's dealing specifically with those, a la chapter 10, who have been imprisoned and persecuted and mistreated because of the faith. And now they're out of the picture. I don't see them. They're not a part of my daily life. They're off somewhere. They're sitting in, you know, some cell someplace. And in expressing this love for those who are circumstantially distant from us, they're not near to us physically in that sense, he makes explicit what love for the brethren really does imply, but he makes it explicit here, which is this idea of solidarity with one another. We're members of one another, and he makes it absolutely explicit here. He says, remember... Remember the prisoners. What's the point? It's easy to forget. Out of sight, out of mind. Remember the prisoners. In what sense? What does it look like? As though you were in prison with them. As though you are right there with them. And remember those who are ill-treated recognizing that you also are in the body. And he doesn't mean in the body of Christ. He means that the affliction that is coming against them in their physical, mortal lives is the same sort of affliction that can come to you. And in fact, it probably had at some point. He says, remember, remember, you, were, you joined yourselves in standing in solidarity with those who were mistreated and you endured the same mistreatment yourself. You are in the same circumstance of life, subject to the same frailties, to the same liability to suffering and pain. You are one with them. You stand in solidarity with them. Because they were members of one another, they should be mindful of their brethren who are out of sight as if they were right there with them as if they were a part of their experience. So his point is that love regards the suffering and mistreatment of others as if it is our own. As if it is our own. But the natural thing is out of sight, out of mind. We have brothers and sisters who go through a particularly dark time and we're like, oh, I'm right there with you. I really feel it. I'm sympathetic with you. And and then we move on. And a week later, we don't think about it anymore. Or two days later, we don't think about it anymore. We've moved on. Out of sight is out of mind. We're busy with our day, with our stuff, with our problems, with our family, with our home, with our job, with our this. Sorry, I'm not even thinking about that. That's the reason for his command, remember, remember, remember. Personal concerns, preoccupations crowd out our thoughts of others. And the more remote a particular experience is to us, the harder it is for us to actually own it in a real and a personal way. The more foreign it is to us, the more distant it is, the more unfamiliar it is to us, 
the more remote, the less we can actually own it as our own. And even the most sincere sympathy, even the most sincere sympathy is not the same as bearing it as your own. It's easy for us to be sympathetic. How many times do we tell one another, oh, I'll pray for you? And we say a little prayer, and in 15 minutes, it's out of our head, and it never crosses our mind again until the next time somebody brings it up. But owning, owning the mistreatment, owning the suffering, owning the lives of others as if it were our own, that's what love does. And it isn't distracted or dulled by immediate concerns or the remoteness of the circumstance to our daily life. This is convicting stuff, but this is the way Jesus lived his life, right? This is the way Jesus showed what it is to be a human being who's defined by love as God himself is defined by love. So love that is grounded in union with Christ, and there is no authentic love that isn't grounded in union with Christ, love recognizes the solidarity of Christ's body. It reaches across whatever distance of whatever sort. I can't relate to that. You're too far away. Whatever. It reaches across whatever distance between us and that one in order to be one with the other in his circumstance. Paul says, because the body is one, we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. I've brought it up before, but it's, it, it's like an arrow to my heart. You know, in the ancient world, it was hard to keep track of what was going on in people's lives when they were distant. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he's instructing them about how they have to, it's time to receive back a man that they had withheld fellowship from. They had obeyed him in withdrawing fellowship from a man who was, you know, in, in a posture of of sin or disobedience that was negatively affecting the body. But Paul says it's time to receive him back. It's enough for him. We're not unaware of Satan's schemes. Paul wasn't even in Corinth. He was probably somewhere else in Macedonia. I mean, he, he writes that letter to Corinth because Titus comes to him with news about Corinth. He's not in Corinth. And yet he knows what's going on with people in Corinth and the relationship of the believers in Corinth, that he's more aware of it and more sensitive to individuals and what's going on with them than the Corinthians themselves are. And we can be part of a small body of believers and we're clueless about what's going on with each other's lives. It's one thing if you're in a congregation of 500 people or something, you say, I, I've never even talked to this person. I have no idea, you know, but, but it ought not to be that way. Love reaches through the distance to be one with the other in his circumstance. It weeps with those who weep. It rejoices with those who rejoice. And it is a discipline of mind and heart. It can be distracted. It can be undone. It's a discipline of mind and heart. But again, it has its life and its source in the new creation in Jesus. It reflects the paradigm of a new human organism. We are members of one another. It becomes a euphemism in our head. We don't really think that way day to day. We certainly don't live that way. 
But it's the truth. There is no me except in the context of the whole. If we're in Christ, there's no longer me in the way that I knew me. There is the body of which I am a vital part. And this kind of love reflects this new human organism that is animated, that is united, that is oriented towards the shared life of God in Christ by the Spirit. And saints, when we love one another with that mindset, with that understanding, according to that reality, the world can't help but take notice. This is what Jesus is getting at in his high priestly prayer, and even before in John 13. In the upper room, again, as he's explaining to his disciples what is going to come from his death and the meaning of it, he's talking about how they will become one as he and the Father are one. And he says, when you manifest that in the world, when you manifest this oneness, which is the life of love, then the world will understand that the Father sent me. You can go and do the Romans road, and you, you know, we can do all of these things to evangelize, but what Jesus said really evangelizes is the church being the church. It's kind of what we were trying to hit at a little bit on Friday night. What is the church's mission, and how does it fulfill its mission? How does the church testify to the Messiah? By being the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the witness to Christ much more than the individual person is. And when the world sees a community of people who are related to one another in that sort of a way, they say that Lord, whoever he is that they preach and that kingdom that they proclaim, that one has obviously put something in place that we don't recognize. This is more than a new religion or a new ethic or better behavior. This is a community that does human life in a whole different way. And you see that in the testimony in the first couple centuries of the church. People said, we don't know what to make of these Christians, and maybe they're cannibals because we hear that they eat flesh and drink blood and all these strange things. But what we do see in them is that they are one body, and they love one another, and they care for one another, and they provide for one another. And they're mindful of the, of the world around them, even in the sense that they are the ones who stay and minister to people when they're sick. And don't run away so they won't get sick. They're the ones who are in the, in the throes of this thing called living out the love of God in Christ in the world and amongst one another. And people saw that and they said, that's not natural. There's something there that's profound. It's a new paradigm of human existence. So I hope that this gives us some new insight into really what it means to love and to serve God. We can say, as you know, Jesus said, if you love God, you will keep his commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, well, what does that look like? Well, as I said at the outset, and Jesus himself says it, the very essence, the marrow, the substance of, of his commandments is this obligation of love. A new commandment I give you. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. 
So how do we love and serve the Son? If we say we are disciples of Jesus the Messiah, we love him, we serve him in the world, how do we do this? We love him by loving his people in whom he has his fullness. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but when Jesus talks to his disciples about the judgment that's going to come at his parousia, Matthew 25, And he describes the criterion by which he will winnow the sheep and the goats. What is that criterion? What is that criterion? I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick, you cared for me. Lord, when did we come and visit you in prison? When did we give you something to eat? When did we give you something to drink? You're at the right hand of the Father. When did we do that? Inasmuch as you did it for my brethren, even the least of my brethren, you did it for me. We love the Messiah by loving his people in an active, engaged, tangible way. You know, we kind of joked in the Sunday school hour, it's, we love the church, it's people we can't stand, Right? Oh, I love the Lord. We sing the songs. I love the Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I lift up my voice to you. And I'm not mocking and scorning that. I'm just saying we need to ask ourselves, what does it really look like to love our Lord? It looks like loving his people. And it's a very difficult thing. When Jesus said, the whole world will know you're my disciples when you love one another, the premise behind that is that All of these brethren are very different people. They don't see things the same. Some of them are very irritating. Some of them are people that we probably wouldn't be friends with outside of Christ. We're not just to love those who love us. We're not just to love those who say what we like or, or, you know, we see our face as a reflection in their face. We love our brothers. We love our sisters. With all the warts, with all the, with all the difficulties, with all the frustrations, we persevere in love. Let love remain. And in that way, we persevere in faith. We persevere in faith. We are to be doers of the truth, ordering our lives in all of its dimensions, all of its circumstances, all of its demands according to the truth of what God has accomplished in the Messiah and who we are in him. And this looks like living a life of love. Love as it's true in God, love as it's been fully manifest and, and, and realized in Jesus himself, and as it is poured out and formed and perfected in us by the Spirit, Romans 5. Unreserved self-giving for the other's good. For the other's good. This isn't emotional. This isn't, oh, you know, I, I need to just do whatever you think, or I don't want you to be upset with me, or whatever. This is, this is a disciplined, purposeful, wise-minded seeking of the other's true good, which for our brothers and sisters means what? Their conformity to Christ. Our ministration of love is that they would grow up in all things into Christ, who is the head. And that doesn't mean that it's not practical. It is practical. Because even the Spirit's work of renewing the inner man requires the care of the outer man, right? 
There's a sense in which our physical lives have to continue on if we're to continue by the Spirit's grace to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. So this isn't some spiritual thing that doesn't pay any attention to people's tangible, material, earthly needs. But even the meeting of those earthly needs has a very precise, understood, discerned, intentional goal, which is seeing our brothers and sisters grow up in the Messiah, being conformed to him. That love that the writer calls for is the very essence of persevering faith. He hasn't changed the topic. This is love that reaches beyond what meets the eye and draws into the future consummative perfecting work of God to bring it into the present and to serve that ultimate outcome in ministrations of love. That's what it is to love one another. And as I said, this is not an easy thing, you know, because I'm not exempt from this. None of us are. We all, even to whatever extent we think that we are mature in our love for one another, Paul would say, excel all the more. You're not as mature as you think. This is not an easy thing. It's going to take everything that we have. It's going to take everything that we are. It's hard to be invested in people's lives and problems. We have enough of our own, don't we? I just need a break. I just want to go to that cabin in Wyoming, right? Just leave me alone. I can't handle it anymore. Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. And all of my suffering is for your sake. Death is at work in me that life would be at work in you. That's what it is to love one another. What a high calling. What a glorious privilege. And this is the work of the Spirit. We need to be crying out and seeking that the Spirit would teach us these things and cause us to actually live them out. Stop making excuses for ourselves. Stop rationalizing. Be about the business of being sons of the kingdom, that the world would understand that the Father sent the Son. Father, I pray for each one here. I pray that these things would be pressed deeply into our hearts, and each one of us, in our own way, to some extent, this should be a barb into our heart. Because the love that is true of our God, the God who is love, the love that is fully manifest in Jesus the Messiah, is not the love that we see in our own lives. We know our thoughts. We know our hearts. We know our resentments. We know our distractions. We know our desire to be left alone. And I pray, Father, that as you have begun this good work and as you have promised to complete it, that we will give ourselves fully, truly to growing up in Christ in such a way that we become such a people who love. It'll never be perfect. We will never arrive. But it's got to start with us really becoming a community of people that are members of one another and that live lives that are open and receptive to what you would bring things that inconvenience our day, things that we don't have time for, things that we don't want to be bothered with, 
circumstances, people. I pray that we would be willing to spend and be spent. That as Paul said, I am fully pleased and content to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of the faith of the saints. Father, if your church would be this kind of community, the world would not be able to look the other way. And sadly, what the world tends to see is another organization full of backbiting, backstabbing, power-grabbing, climbing the ladder, exploitation, manipulation. It ought not to be so. Teach us what it means to be lovers of Christ by being lovers of one another. That he would be glorified in the church and in the world, in this age and for all eternity. Amen.